Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Biz Podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 121, and today's guest is Brianne Leeming, founder and CEO of Unruly Studios. I'm always fascinated with entrepreneurs who are launching physical products. There is such a greater level of complexity and ultimately risk behind their business. You have to design the product, get it manufactured, and then sold, which is also very challenging in terms of figuring out which sales channel is going to get your product in the hands of consumers. Do you go direct with an e-commerce model, sell through retailers, or figure out a B2B to C business model? There is so much that goes into it. Well, Brianne Leeming's company, Unruly Studios, is taking this challenge head-on with a product that's very cool, different, and in my opinion, needed. Unruly Splats are the company's first product, and it teaches kids critical STEM skills while being active and having fun all at the same time. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like all about Brianne's background, including her first jobs and the decision to go back to business school, the story of how Unruly Studios came to be and how they named the company, her experience building hardware and how she went about getting feedback on the product, all the details on Unruly Splats in terms of how kids play with it and what they learn, her experience creating a successful Kickstarter campaign and what channels have been effective for sales, advice for entrepreneurs trying to build and bring a physical product to market, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you might want to add a BizPage subscription. It is our employment branding and hiring solution that helps to keep your company top of mind for our targeted audience of professionals in the tech industry. A BizPage subscription includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to our exclusive content series, and so much more. Send an email to info at for more details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Brianne. Brand, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we've got a lot to talk about because you've built this amazing product that uh, is super exciting and uh, it's, it's not an easy thing to build. So we're going to talk all about how you built this company and product and everything. But before we get into that, let's talk about your uh, history. So like, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Yeah, so I grew up in New Hampshire, actually in, a col- in the college town, Hanover, New Hampshire, where Dartmouth is. And- oh, well, I grew up in Hooksit, New Hampshire, so. Oh, you're we go oh, to yeah. Hanover every year from there's a shrine football game between the high schools. So, or it's an all-star game of the high schools in New Hampshire versus Vermont. I've gone to that game before actually. Yeah. yeah it's a lot of okay. fun. Hello, New Hampshire. Live for your die then. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I grew up there. It's, uh, as you know, a really small town, really be- like great place to grow up. And, um, uh, my parents own a restaurant in town. So I grew up around that environment, really working in the restaurant for 10 years and, entrepreneurs um, yes very much so and it's it's uh it's a really great place to grow up and uh and so that really inspired me a lot in in my journey as seeing what my parents had built in that community around the restaurant there called murphy's if you're ever up there <laughs> it's a great was, were you working in the restaurant business like were you helping out all the time in, in the restaurant oh yeah all the time since i was probably 15 i was you know catering and then waitressing and you know all of those things every summer for the most part so yes, learned a lot from that, and I, I really loved my time there. So, yeah, it's definitely when you have that family business, you become absorbed into it. That was, uh, you know, my dad had a leather coat factory, so I was cleaning leather coat scraps. Uh, as, as it taught me an incredible work ethic. Absolutely, yeah. I think everyone should work in a restaurant at some point. I mean, it's just it, you can learn a lot about people too. I, I yeah, customer service, absolutely. Like that, that you know, I, I had spent time working at Holiday Inn where it ta- taught me exactly how to deal with lots of different types of people, people that are happy, people that are not happy. 
So. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so where, did, where did you go to college? So I went up to Montreal to McGill University for college. I studied cognitive science there um, and really was inspired to go up there because uh, Hanover being such a small town, I, wanted to, I knew I wanted to go to a city. So that's really all I was applying to. And then I ended up getting recruited to play lacrosse up there. And I visited Montreal once and I just absolutely fell in love. It's an amazing city. So that was what brought me up there. Very cool. Yeah. McAllister is an amazing, amazing school. So, uh, in Montreal, just, yeah, it's, it's, it's a beautiful place. I, I, I bet you it was awesome just to be like in, in that culture for college. Oh yeah, it was. I loved it. And McGill is right in the middle of the city too. So I loved that part of it. Um, and it just, you know, it was such a different experience from where I grew up. It felt like it was far away, even though it was pretty close to home. So, <laughs> so what'd you do after school? First jobs? Yeah, so after school, I ended up in New York City. I had a, a brief stint back in Hanover helping my parents with the restaurant. And then I, uh, I went to New York City. I got my first job at Harry Winston, which is a luxury watch and jewelry brand. I was in their watch department globally, which was super interesting for a first position out of school. I mean, I learned so much about a global organization and I was in the product development side of things. So really learning about, uh, you know, everything from pricing to competitive analysis to uh, really the market of luxury watches and timepieces. Got to go to Switzerland for that too, which is really neat. Um, and then after that, I worked at an advertising tech startup in New York City. It was around 130 person startup. So super interesting place to be because there was a lot to do and a lot to learn there. And then you decided to go back to B school from, from, from that point? Yes. So I decided to go to business school. I ended up going to Babson for business school. Um, I was interested in entrepreneurship or just entrepreneurial um, thinking in general. And uh, that's what inspired me to apply there. But really it was from working in that startup community. It was around 130 people. So it was such an interesting size. It was getting big, it was growing quickly. There was so much to do. So we were just constantly you know, solving problems day to day. I was given a lot of responsibility very quickly there. And uh, that's really what inspired me to want to go back is I had, as I was solving these problems every day, I was sort of like seeing above it all and thinking like there, there would be, there was more I could learn about how to do this better and like how to, you know, how do high functioning teams work and like all of that was really interesting to me so um and I learned so much there so that's really what inspired me to go back and, and so I wanted to answer some questions for myself and I didn't really think I didn't know I would start a business right away at all but I ended up back at Babson and that's where everything really started but you certainly had the entrepreneurial spirit that hey I, I, I might start my own business someday and, and so was that the you know why Babson because of just their great reputation for entrepreneurship Definitely was was key part of the decision. I was only looking at schools that had strong entrepreneurship programs, and Babson is number one. So I, that was my top choice, and they um, it ended up being like such a good fit. Uh, yeah, I I had inklings that I wanted to start a business, but I thought it was going to be way far in the future. So I was you know thinking I'll I'll go there, I'll work within the ed tech industry. I did want to switch industries um, into education technology, which I was really passionate about. And, um, and then ended up kind of taking a turn when I got there, but yeah, that was why I, why I went there. So at what point did you start your company on Rooley Studios? Like, was that, um, after Babson, uh, like, like what kind of right to that point of recognizing that this was something that you could tackle? So it all started at Babson. I, I kind of, I guess the idea for it started earlier. You know, when I look back, I realized that lots of pieces of of unruly were kind of starting years before 
But I had the initial idea at Babson where I had this idea about building an electronic playground. And it was like a learning environment for kids that was active, physically active. So that was where that initial idea came from. But really previous to that, I mean, my time at McGill, I had studied cognitive science. And doing that, I had been exposed to computer science. I had to take it. It was a required course to take a logic course and I chose the computer science one just sort of randomly and then I realized in that course that I just thought it sounded cool you know I was like what is this I don't know let's try it and and I ended up really liking it and realized that during that course that I had actually learned the language we were learning Lisp as a kid at school in Hanover so at my public school they had exposed us to that um, I was super lucky to have that and I realized it really helped me those 10 years later um, and then even when I was working in the tech startup in New York City, I realized that I was, you know, working hands on with engineers, leading tech projects and managing tech projects. And I realized that it helped me in those situations too, that early exposure. So I was like very hooked on the idea that more kids needed that exposure in a fun, engaging way that was very approachable. And so at that time, I was also seeing the market forming of lots of engineering experiences for kids or different toys coming out for kids and things like that. And I was seeing that it was really amazing to me to see STEM and engineering get rebranded for kids in that way, because I hadn't seen that before. So I was excited about that and very inspired by it. And then at Babson was where I sort of had that aha moment of, you know, the gap in the market is that the way that kids are being presented to STEM, while it might be rebranded, it's, it's still not really being presented to them the way kids actually play. Because um, I knew, like at McGill, I had actually worked at the um, McGill sports camp one summer, and I knew kids love playing that way. They love playing actively. They still love recess. They love, like, you know, dodgeball and, like, that, all those, like, classic games. But they're just not happening as much anymore because, I mean, screens are taking over for sure. They're just, there isn't as much time in this school day for that kind of play. Um, and so I was seeing that happen, and, and kind of that was all of that sort of mixed together into my electronic playground idea. And I started prototyping it from there. So you started building the prototype while you were still at Babson? Yes, um, oh. I did actually. Yeah. And I oh. had no prototyping experience. Uh, yeah. So you have some of the core fundamentals, like you obviously have the degree cognitive science of kind of like what someone needs to be thinking about when using the product, you, you know, learn how to code. Uh, but you were busy building a physical piece of hardware that you know does need to be connected to an iPad or an iPhone or so. So how, how did you start to build a physical piece of, of hardware, an actual product? Yeah, so um, I started small. That's one key piece. So I actually started by going to CVS and buying for $20 a couple of pieces of poster board. And I actually made it into the type of product that I was thinking about was something kids would jump on. So I started by making like kind of a little poster board sized mat on the ground. And I sort of cut out some pieces where I could pretend that, you know, that the computer was changing the game, but really it was me flipping over cards for kids. And so I went to my friends. Um, my friend was a second grade teacher in Roxbury at the time. And I actually went to her school after school one day and just brought that in to see, you know, at the minimum level, is this actually a neat experience for kids? And you're like, let's see how it goes. And it, and it ended up being like better than I ever could have imagined. Even just that it's super simple game. Um, so I knew like I was onto something and that led me to the first electronic prototype. And, um, Doing that, I had an advisor who told me about this place in Somerville called the Artisans Asylum. 
and it led me there. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's a large makerspace with just tons of equipment to build things. And um, so they, they're really big on educating. And so they had these free hacker nights and things like that. So I went to one of the free hacker nights and I'm like, I want to build this thing. And I like had like some notes and some drawings and I'm like, can you help me build this? And ended up meeting this really amazing person there, Mike, who um, runs some of that hacker night stuff. And he helped me do the first prototype really. And it was a several month process is building that. Um, but I wanted to learn at the beginning what was going into it. So so yeah, so you so it's not like you outsource the creation of this like so you got your hands dirty. I mean, you were yeah. learning how to you know connect the components, soldering irons, and all the like. So uh, like it just blows my mind. Like because I've never I've never had to do this, but I always am fascinated. But like, how do you actually like connect all the electronics so that it actually functions and does what you want it to do? It's just mind blown type of think, thinking. I know. I mean, so I definitely had some help. That was that was a key piece of. But I learned soldering and that was actually kind of fun. It felt like an art project or something. I don't know. I like once you got the hang of it. So I started doing that and you have to make sure all the connections are solid so that the electricity goes through. But um, then I had some help in terms of we were using an Arduino, which so what's really cool is that there's so many tools now to make it really easy to get a prototype up and running. Um, there's a ton like with Arduino and Raspberry Pi and those kinds of things, which are things that we use there's just a ton of ways to even get like Bluetooth working really quickly and, and low cost. I mean, that costs Arduino's, you know, like $30, if not less. So um, some of that stuff is just getting so easy to prototype that I was, you know, I was excited to be there at that time. And we had, there were lots of people excited to try it out and help too. And so that's sort of where it all started. And how'd you come up with the name? Um, yeah, so we had, we were working under a different name for a while. And then I knew that I needed because of the type of difference that we were trying to go with for the product, which was really going into this like education STEM market and being a little bit edgy and kind of meeting kids where they were at, like with the recess type play and like sort of that other side of what you don't usually see in STEM. So um, I was looking for a name that was a little bit edgier that kind of spoke to kids. And I kind of I kind of was like, I want the brand to be a little more Nickelodeon style, like really just like in your face and like fun for kids. And so that was where um, I ended up doing the Brandathon competition in Boston. I don't know if you've heard of yeah, that. The ad club? Yeah. Yes. The ad club. Exactly. Wow. No way. Okay. <laughs> and um, I told our team that from GPJ, they were incredible. And they did a weekend where they rebrand like 12 startups and you all compete and all the agencies compete for the best startup rebrand is a super cool competition so that um that was a great experience and I told them like I was like I wanted to be you know say what we do but be a little bit edgier like obviously we teach coding so it did want it to have something to do with that and they came up with unruly um and that ended up being perfect it was like you know you're building the rules so when you're make, building code you're building new rules but we also wanted kids to make their own rules for the games they were making so all of it really worked well and we've been running with that ever since <laughs> wow that's awesome to hear that success story like i'm very familiar with the ad club and all the great events they put on and you know we help promote that competition so hear that that's how your company's name stemmed from that is is awesome yes thanks to gpj they were incredible so so you build your prototype um i'm assuming you're getting this in front of kids like once they they can actually start stomping on it. So, so what did, how, how did you get things going to the point where you're like, okay, this is a legit opportunity, something that I think I can bring to market? 
So at that time, I mean, I, I started, the first person on my team I met was Amon Milner, who is a founding advisor for Unruly. And he's a professor at Olin College. He now has the Museum of Unruly prototypes in his office at Olin because there's probably 20 different versions that we went through as we were testing out the experience with kids. All of them are super different. Like the first one was four feet by four feet. It was huge. It was, you know, I was hardly fit into my car. Um, and then we, we slowly kind of kept making changes, made it more modular, made it more affordable, um, and then ended up to the design for manufacturing stage. So uh, that's, that's where we went with it. And the, in terms of the first kids we tested with, we actually went to a YMCA summer camp one summer. I got connected with them through one of the programs I was doing with Babson. So we went to a summer camp and then an after school program at YMCA in East Boston. Those were the first two places we really tested out the prototype. Um, and it was just super fun. And then we started doing lots of testing around town. We did a lot at Boston Children's Museum a lot at just different maker fair events, that kind of stuff. So um, really just tried to get it out. I loved going out to test it with large groups and with just total strangers because I felt like we were getting the best feedback that way um, versus just testing with friends or family or something like that. So that was sort of our strategy. And we ended up over the year, you know, over that time, we, we tested with about 3,000 kids and educators. 3,000, wow. Yeah, just about that, because we did so many big events, so we would have hundreds of people come by that day, and we would do smaller events, and we just, we, after adding it all up, it, it ended up being a lot, but it was well so, worth it. You're at the Children's Museum, and you have all these kids coming to visit the Children's Museum for the day, and, and you, you were kind of, I assume, at the, at the side, like, hey, test out our product. So were you looking for kids to provide you like actual feedback, the parents or like, how did you gather the feedback other than just watching them play? Yeah. And we had a couple ways. I mean, we, we definitely watched. There was a lot of observing. There was a lot of informal chats with parents and educators just about, you know, how, how they use products like this, like all of that kind of stuff and trying to really understand what the pain points were. Um, like for instance, one of our big question marks in the beginning was how do we want this to be charged? Do we want it to plug into the wall or have batteries? And that kind of thing is the perfect thing to ask at an event like that, where you're seeing what does a teacher prefer in their classroom? Um, and we actually found they prefer batteries because it's hard to charge a bunch of things at once if you've got a class coming in next. <laughs> if they're out of battery, you have no other option. But if you can change the batteries quickly, then you're good for the next class. So things like that we learned just from, from talking. Um, we also did some surveys. We surveyed kids, we surveyed um, adults as well. Um, we had at one point when we were looking at our design, the actual uh, physical design of what it would look like. Um, that was when I had brought on my co-founder, Dave Kunitz, who's from the Hasbro, he has a Hasbro Mattel background. So he brought in, um, we did about 14 different designs of where we could go. And we surveyed kids and parents and educators on that and found um, our winning design, which ended up being the same for both, which was the splat that you see today. So we did do a lot of development with users, which was great. Well, let's, let's, let's see the product. So the, the splat, like how does it work and how do kids play with it? Yeah. So what unruly splats are is they are electronic floor buttons that light up, they make sound and they sense when they're stepped on. So they're durable enough to be stomped on by kids, by adults, up to 300 pounds. They, we have durability tested a lot, um, which is really fun by the way. Um, but <laughs> we just like jump on them as hard as we can all the time. So this is a splat. It's um, meant for, so you can put them there. They are wirelessly connected to an iPad 
and they light up, make sound, and send stepping. So you can actually program new rules into the splats. So the types of games that kids can play on them range from, you know, relay races to dance routines they invent to music compositions they create. Um, they can create um, tag type of games. We have an awesome push-up competition that's been going on lately. So <laughs> it's really meant for like lots of active play. You can definitely play it on the table too. And they connect just through Bluetooth to a tablet. So I'll show you what it looks like. We have a little startup. So that's the beautiful product. Thank you. Yes. Well, I mean, so Dave Punitz, he's my co-founder. He did all the industrial design of the product. And um, his background was actually in designing Star Wars and G.I. Joe products. So in that way, he had this great experience of having designed for durability before. Because, you know, when we were like little boys playing G.I. Joe, definitely can get um, get a lot of use out of it. So he was he was great. And he kind of came up with the more unruly design to make sure that it it went with our branding. So this is now searching for Bluetooth. I will just connect it up and show you on the app. It's now connected. Um, the app here shows this is the coding language we use. So through a kid-friendly coding language, kids can actually change the rules to the game. So we base this on Scratch. Um, we work with Amon Milner, who was an original Scratch team member. That's a, an amazing product that has you know now gone to about 40 million kids globally and it's drag and drop programming super simplified to get kids into the logic of coding without Was that born out of mit it was yeah yeah so we base it off of that we use a product called google blockly in this and um basically we've got the virtual slots here i'm just trying to show you so the it's this program here would say one slot one gets pressed um what you want it to do so you just drag and drop it's as simple as that so light splat one and i'll go uh, pink and I would pull in play the sound of a doorbell. So that's a little program that we just made and now we will Show you the pink that's doorbell. So cool. <laughs> that's a really simple version, but um, Kids really can take that and, and run with it. Literally. They just they'll create their own rules There's preloaded games. We have 10 lesson plans that teachers are using and those range from capture the flag we have a splats dj game we have relay race like that kind of stuff so it's it's a nice excuse you know that's what is really different about the product too within the stem space is that teachers can bring it in and it's like you pull the you push all the chairs to the side of the room and you're you're doing stem but it's it's active which is totally different and very social it's it's much more of a group um experience than most and I mean, it's, it's important, you know, I think it's great for anyone to learn how to code, right? I mean, there's just good benefits regardless of what your choice profession is at the end of the day. But, uh, but it's also, you know, taking, you know, what a, a lot of, you know, the frustrations of the current generation of just staring at iPhones or iPads all day is getting them to still apply the interest there from a, a science point of view, but applying it to active gaming. So I'm assuming this is, you know, I have a, I'm a parent of uh, two girls that are 13 and 15 now, but uh, you know, I just, I assume you probably hear that from parents. It's like, yes, we need these kids to be active still. Absolutely. Like they're off the couch. I think the stuff that I've read is through some of the museum research that's out there is that um, active play has dropped 50% in the last 40 years. That is so disheartening. It's really, it's really sad. And, and it's not the, it's also that kids still love playing that way. Like they're hardwired to run around and jump and jump off the couch and all that, but they're just, it's actually not happening as much anymore. 
um, which is, you know, another reason why this is exciting for us to be putting this out. And I think teachers are responding super well to it too, as they, there's lots of teachers trying to bring more, there's a lot more sitting in the day. They're shortening recess times at a lot of schools. There's an emphasis on testing, which means more sitting. Um, and teachers are looking for excuses to give their students a brain break. Um, we start at age six, so we go around first grade up to seventh with our lesson plans and where we fit into the day. And so, you know, we've we've just been really amazed by what they're doing with it. And we have even a ton of interest from PE teachers who want to bring tech into PE class, which was a total surprise for us. So we have been, you know, diving full into that too. But yeah. So you build this product and you you know have all these um, kids tested out and parents are giving you great feedback. And you're like, okay, I've got something here, but you actually have to bring it to market and get consumers to actually buy this and discover it, right? And you can't just walk into Toys R Us anymore because they don't even exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so it's just like, so, how, so you, you decided to do the Kickstarter route. So, so how, did, how did you go about you know, building the campaign and then how did you generate momentum to ultimately you know, have a successful campaign there? Yeah, and you you definitely hit it right on of, of the decision to do that was really to prove the market demand for us was we knew we had a product when we tested it out. It was engaging. We knew people liked it and they would tell us, you know, I'd buy it. And even at one maker fair, I had this this guy come up and he basically handed me a credit card and it was still this metal prototype that we had with like wires sticking out of it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this has got to be a good sign. Like if we're We've got people trying to buy it. So that was what led us to want to really test that out because until someone actually pays for it, you don't really know. Um, They could tell you, you know, whatever. And so it was a great test in, we had mostly, you know, more than half the campaign was total strangers. And that's exactly what we were trying to understand was like, can we message this and put it out a video and see if people are actually interested in a product like this. And we got amazing, you know, response educators from around the world too, which was exciting. Um, and so that was the decision to do it. And we definitely had to build momentum beforehand. We had been like with all the testing we had done in the years before, um, we had collected email addresses and, and kept in touch with people that were interested and tried to keep them updated on progress. And so building that community beforehand was a key piece of, of our success on Kickstarter. But I definitely recommend it for, you know, founders who are trying to test out an idea and, um, who are far enough along that you know what you need to build, um, but just need that extra push into the market demand side. And that, that was super helpful for us. And ended up leading to our pre-seed round where we had a lot of interest from investors after it as well, because they had seen that there was a demand for the product. And how did you figure out the pricing? Like, how did you decide on what to, to price it at? Combination of sort of looking at what was already, you know, what, what our basic costs we thought were going to be. That was a, obviously had to make sure that that worked. Um, and then also looking at the market and what was it currently available and how teachers were buying different products for their classrooms and what they were used to and trying to really make it friendly for the education community, friendly for you know, parents. So, so really just sort of a combination of looking at our costs, but also really looking at the market and what was expected and what people were willing to pay. So we did do some surveys before um, as well. So a lot of the, you know, as we were testing, we were always asking, um, asking the people who visited um, that kind of thing. So. And how many, so how many uh, units were sold through Kickstarter? And then how did you figure out, okay, now we need to manufacture this and we need to figure out how to get it in the hands, shipping part up to consumers. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's see, we sold probably about 200 units through Kickstarter and that um, we had promised a year. We, we built more inventory than that just so that we could sell for the last. So we started selling in November last year um, and working with Dave because Dave had come on about six months before the Kickstarter, which was the perfect timing. We started to hone in on what the product was going to look like. We, we were at the point where we had functional prototypes that looked like the product. They were still made out of wood, but they didn't look like it. So they looked like plastic, but they were still very much a prototype. And, um, and so we were able to kind of get the messaging down and, and start getting ready to go on to Kickstarter. And in that way, we, we had really, we, we had gone down the path of meeting our manufacturer getting some basic costs. So really trying to, it was my goal from the beginning. I wanted to do a Kickstarter and deliver on time. Um, Cause I thought that would be just a great way to start our community. It's just like, you know, really over deliver. And so I was really happy with how we, we were able to do that. We were three weeks late, but it's still in Kickstarter terms. Like that's, that's pretty good. That's pretty much on time. So we were happy. Now, there's a stretch of time that um, you were juggling a lot. Like, so, so, uh, from what I gathered in my travels before this interview, so you were, um, you know, trying to get this company off the ground, you know, getting a product built, uh, you were doing consulting, right? So you're doing marketing consulting and then you were planning a wedding, I think at the same time, right? So it was like, it's, so I, like, how did you juggle the time then? And how do you continue to juggle your time now just with so much going on? Yeah. I mean, that was probably one of the craziest times of the entire history because <laughs> we were running a Kickstarter. I think I still had three consulting jobs. Even that summer, I was still helping at my parents' restaurant from time to time. And I was, um, and I was planning our wedding at, with my husband. And so we, yeah, we got married in the middle of the Kickstarter, which was not the original plan, but ended up being what we, <laughs> what we had to do. <laughs> the Kickstarter we pushed slightly. So, um, so yeah, that, that was, I mean, how I, I guess how I would say is having the support around you, your, your family and my husband's support was crucial. I can't imagine doing it without that. I think, um, you know, having their support and their, their belief in the business was super helpful from the beginning. Um, and then it's just, you know, you have to be in it for the right reasons, I think with a startup. So the reason that I started the company was very mission driven and it was about what we were building. And there was this this sort of higher power of why I wanted to build it and why I would stick with it. And I think that when you have that, you're willing to go through the really hard times. Um, and so I definitely would recommend that, you know, building, building these products and building them to solve problems and to really make the world better or have this social impact. That, that was what kept me going for sure was that initial sort of talking to customers. Every time we would talk to customers, you would see it that we were really solving a real problem for them. And so, um, yeah, I think that's helpful in the whole process for sure. But my, and my husband, he's a teacher, so he brought in this amazing perspective from that too. And, um, you know, we're always, we're really both very passionate about education. And so that's always been a guiding force for sure. And is that how, like you talked about, you know, you were doing consulting, you were still working at the family restaurant. Was that how you were continuing to fund this business? You know, you said you did raise a little pre-seed money. Like, how did you manage the burn rate? Like, building hardware is not inexpensive. Yeah. Um, so we, in the early days, yeah, we were definitely bootstrapped. I mean, really, the way we got to market, too, was very, very scrappy. Um, we spent, I think, a total of about a little under 600K to do everything, to manufacture the first huge production run, to, do, like, sell those units, 
build the app, man, you know, design for manufacturing, all the prototyping. And so um, that was super scrappy of us. And at the early days before the Kickstarter, we were even, you know, we had, almost, you know, we were just kind of going with <laughs> literally what we had. So yes, I was, nobody was getting paid. We were all really working for equity. We were all um, had other jobs supporting it. And so that was a key, key piece of how we got and then once the Kickstarter happened, that's when we got the, our traction with early investors and we started to roll into next steps and go, thinking a bit bigger because we had proven a lot before that Kickstarter. We had proven the, you know, that the manufacturing would work. We had set it up with a partner. We had proven that people would pay for it. And so at that point, we were really ready to start moving. But it was, you know, it's a lot for sure. I mean, we were, <laughs> there was, uh, I think at one point I had three or four different side gigs to get it going. It's the hustle, the side hustle to keep paying yeah. bills. <laughs> so what's, what's your plan? Is it to get it into the major retailers that, you know, like the Walmarts and, uh, or is it more direct to consumer? Like what's your plan as far as, you know, growth and hopeful, you know, more consumers purchasing it? Um, so as we've been in continuing to, sell splats and get them out to the market. We have had incredible traction with schools. Um, and it was so surprising for me because I always thought that schools would eventually find us, but that it would be a later down the road thing. But they've just been so excited upfront. Like they're our best promoters. They are, you know, these speakers are using it frequently in their classrooms and things like that. And so as we saw that, we, we've really gone all in on our school, um, our school strategy and we're having incredible results. Like we're seeing a ton of incredible on Twitter at least we get a ton of videos shared from our teachers that are using it all over the country we're in now 42 states so we've spread really quickly even with this you know just like being super scrappy but um, it's all been through word of mouth really spread online very organic which we love and the types of stuff they're sharing is just incredible they've been um, we had a video shared recently from Hawaii of a school that's using it for sports challenges so they were actually doing crunches and push-ups on the splats and this gym teacher was like getting all the kids coding new ways to count their push-ups and stuff like that and um, he sent this video that was just awesome we had a karate chop game shared recently which was totally new way to use splats um even just today yeah it was like a drill it was the, this like sort of you know run you can spread the splats out pretty far and so there was a running drill that they, someone had sent us they showed and some really cool zombie tag game. That was one that we saw. So it's it's been really neat to see what people are building around and we like to share and promote those. So that's where, you know, if you go to our Twitter, you'll see all the different videos of what people are doing with them around the country. And we're up in Canada too. We're in four provinces um, up there. So, and lots of cold places because of the indoor recess, which we never really thought about, but yeah, lots of cold places we're buying in the middle of the winter because, um, you know, you gotta have something to do that's active inside. Well, you do have this product that is something that uh, you can be creative. And if they're, if the consumers are creating these videos and, you know, pushing them out there on Facebook or Twitter or whatever social network that, you know, does create that hopeful viral loop. And, it, you know, next thing you know, like I'm sure you've seen the Roomba with the cats riding on them and, you know, oh, those, yeah. those things just start yeah. going viral. So you yeah. have that type of video, uh, type of product that is very visually uh, appealing and to see what people, their creative energy creates out of it is, uh, is definitely a great marketing channel. Yes, it's been really fun to see. Every time I see a new video, I'm just like often laughing. They were the funniest ideas people have. The be one of the best was this guy 
duct taped them to his feet and he made like monster sounds. So it was like every time it was a teacher, it was like every time he stepped, he was like making these really like facing kids around the classroom. So <laughs> that is so cool. Like, I yeah, so that. so what, what's your future plan? Like what's, uh, you know, is it just the, you know, continue to focus on this product or do you see a whole line of products coming out of Unruly? So, yeah, the, I mean, the vision has always been to create these ridiculously fun experiences for kids. And so we want, we'll be continuing to build the electronic playground as we go. Um, we, you know, this is the first product, but we've already got more in the works. And uh, so, yeah, you'll definitely see more as part of the same system coming, coming at some point. Now, what advice would you give to founders? You talked about, you know, you maintain the burn rate and built a product with a, you know, relatively, you know, low amount of money in comparison to what you built, but you did recently close a, a recent round of funding, right? Yep. We did. Yeah. We raised a seed round 1.8 million, um, from Techstars, Amazon, AT&T, um, and led by Ecos Angels in the Boston, New Hampshire area, actually New Hampshire based. Um, so uh, yeah, and so lots of angel groups locally as well. So what advice would you give the founders on raising a seed round of capital and having that you know, syndicate come together? Because that, that's some impressive uh, investors that you have. Yeah, I think, you know, what I've learned through the process, and this is, I am a first-time founder, so a lot of this I have learned as part of the process of starting Unruly. Um, but I think what I learned the most was that it's, it's just – Raising this seed round did not start when we decided to raise the seed round. Like it started years ago when I started to have this idea, put it out in the open. I just had lots of coffee meetings. I started to build my network and it was building relationships the whole time. So you're, you know, you're really trying to find people who are excited about what you're doing and who can provide value to what you're doing. And that's what we've done along the way. I mean, even our corporate investors that we work with, AT&T has this incredible program specifically for education tech startups. And that's how we got linked with them. And so they've had this, you know, you wouldn't even think of that, but they are kind of coming in with knowing all the best events and bringing us all the best education events. And we're going to be at a booth with them um, at ISTE in June in Philly, all education technology. So that kind of stuff, they provide so much value in that way. Um, and so it's really just the best advice that I would, had been given was about it's when you're raising money or building, you know, investors are investing in lines, not dots. And so basically my, you know, going out early, meeting these investors that I was interested in working with and then building the journey with them and keeping them updated over years, you know, that's really how we built the relationship. So um, our first, you know, one of our first investors to come into the round came right after the Kickstarter. Um, and it was someone I had known, you know, I had been kind of getting advice from and known for a while. And it was just like, it's exciting. You know, it's like, that's how it all built was you're, you're really just kind of bringing everyone along for the journey with you. So that's what I found. effective. The, the key lesson learned there is, uh, you know, don't start raising capital when you need it. And it is a long process of relationship building. And, you know, as an investor, I'm sure they want to see that you know, when you set a goal, when you, you set a milestone, like the Kickstarter uh, campaign, like you followed through on that and you delivered. And, you know, so, uh, you know, so I, I imagine that, that, that constant updating of the investors to the, when it came to the point of closing the syndicate, it was like, yeah, we're in because we believe yeah. in you as a founder. Absolutely. And I would say even especially for first time founders, because you've never, you've never done this before. Um, 
you haven't proven yourself. And so keeping them along for that journey can continue to show the fact that you've, you know, got a really strong team, that your team's committed, that you're committed, that you set goals and you hit them. And that's really what we just kept doing was we, you know, it started with our hardware and manufacturing, and then it was our software and we had to put out the iOS app and then we just put out our Android app. And so all of these things we would say, okay, we're going to do that now. And we would go do it. And then, you know, and show, show that progress. And the momentum is so key. And that's true for a Kickstarter campaign too. It's, it's all about like continuing that momentum and keeping moving forward. Now, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs that are considering building a hardware and the, you know, always, you know, the cliche statement is hardware is hard for a reason, right? Yeah. So, so what, what advice would you give uh, with, with actually going through and building hardware? Um, so I would say, you know, I think for me, one of the things that made me like made us successful at, at manufacturing the first run was I had built a network over that time of other hardware founders as well. And just lots of, lots of sharing of information because so much, especially about, I mean, this is true for, for software as well, but I think a lot about hardware is not really written down in one place. And it's constantly changing information. So every year things are getting, you know, things are changing or it's getting, there's a new software to do this and that makes it easier. Or there's all these things that like change constantly. And so I found that like really building a network of like-minded of other founders who might be, maybe were a couple of years ahead of me in the process of manufacturing was incredibly helpful. It saved me a ton of time is talking to people like that. And that's why like today, if people have questions about hardware and manufacturing and come to me, I always make time for them because people make time for me. Um, and, but I do think that saved us a lot of time. And I, I evaluated a lot of options for getting into market. We knew the basics of what we were gonna build when we had prototyped the experience. Um, and that's where I was evaluating all these different options of how to get to market. And that's really what brought me to Dave was having lots of different meetings and um, seeing the options. There were, you know, there's tons of options, but. Um, but you know, it was all about what we needed and, and Dave has a real way with, he has this, he has, you know, 30, 40 years of experience from within this industry and could bring in his own network and really knew from having done this 40 times before. Um, so that's exactly what I was looking for was someone who really knew how to get this done and, and could talk through the options with me easily and clearly. And, and that's exactly what we went with. So we ended up bringing Dave on as a co-founder at that time and, um, and then the rest history <laughs> so you're very busy building a company um but outside of work what, what do you like to do oh yeah so i i mean i love going for uh, the running outside in boston so so i love going on runs and different like yoga and some you know some of the class pass types that i love exercising so <laughs> if it doesn't show in what product we build like i i'm a former athlete so um, played lacrosse in college, played ice hockey in high school as well, and was a gymnast growing up. So all of that just still, it's always been part of my life. So that's definitely how I unwind after a crazy startup day. <laughs> mm -hmm. So if um, people are interested in buying uh, splats, like where do they go to buy those? And where can we go to watch these fun videos you talked about? Yes. So uh, you can find us at unrulysplats.com. And the videos you can find all on our Twitter at unruly underscore studios. And you will see lots of fun submissions from different teachers around the country on there. So. That's so cool. 
Well, Brian, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background and sharing all the great things that you're up to with Unruly Studios. And of course, all the great pieces of advice on how to build a product and bring it to market. Thank you so much for having me, Keith. This was so much fun. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.